As you have probably uh, picked up on, I often, just like here in just a few minutes, uh, often refer back to uh, songs because uh, songs have a way of staying with us. Are, are you kind of like me? When, when you hear a song, maybe from your high school days, which for me was a long time ago, and you, you hear a song that you haven't heard in years and you just can immediately pick up on it, sing, you know all the lyrics, which is one reason I think it is, it is so important uh, when we sing Scripture. And Stephen did an excellent, excellent job today of, of picking out uh, some songs and hymns. You, you may not even have known it. But we sang scripture several times this morning. If you want to look at your bulletin, Seek ye first the kingdom of God, Matthew 6. Hear, O Israel, Deuteronomy 6. Unto thee, O Lord, Psalm 25. Create in me a clean heart, Psalm 51. And so thank you, uh, Stephen. Just love it uh, when we sing scripture because, again, those, those words, those melodies, those lyrics have a way of... Uh, staying uh, with us. So does anybody remember, you, you probably have to be a country and western fan, anybody remember Emmylou Harris? All right, let's, let's see the hands. I got to see, oh wow, that's good. I, if I said that at Mayfair in Oklahoma City, I'd have been the only one uh, that raised uh, their, their hand. Um, Emmy Lou Harris, uh, back in uh, 2003, released uh, a new album, CD, vinyl, whatever you call it uh, these days. Um, the, the album was titled Stumble Into Grace, a very, um, a very powerful uh, album with, with a number of very meaningful uh, songs, but, but one in particular is titled Time in Babylon. And this, this song depicts our American culture of acquisition and materialism through, as the title suggests, the images of ancient Babylon. Let me read some of those uh, lyrics. Five-lane highway danger zone, SUV and a speaker phone. You need that chrome to get you home, doing time in Babylon. Cluster mansion on the hill, another day in Pleasantville. You don't like it? Take a pill, doing time in Babylon. In the land of the proud and free, you can sell your soul and your dignity for 15 minutes on TV, doing time in Babylon. So suck the fat, cut the bone, Fill it up with silicone. Everybody must get cloned doing time in Babylon. Little boy blue, come blow your horn. The crows are in the corn. The morning sky is red and falling down. The popper's at the till. He's coming for the kill, luring all our children underground in Babylon. We came from apple pie and mom through civil rights and banned the bomb to Watergate in Vietnam. Hard times in Babylon. Rallied round the megaphone, gave it up, just got stoned. Now it's Prada, Gucci, and Peron 
doing time in Babylon. Get results, get them fast. We're ready if you got the, got the cash. Someone else will be laughing last doing time in Babylon. So put that conscience on the shelf. Keep the best stuff for yourself. Let the rest fight over what is left doing time in Babylon. These lyrics prompted Old Testament scholar and theologian Walter Brueggemann to pen a book titled Out of Babylon in which he suggests how Christians in the church today can be both relevant and resistant to the empire philosophies that shape global society. And that is one of the messages that you see quite regularly, quite frequently in the prophetic literature of the Old Testament and even in the book of Revelation in the New Testament. This past Sunday, we began a new series of sermons which will address some of those themes from the minor prophet Micah. And by the way, if you'll look to your left, uh, to my right, you will see some new posters on our east wall, all dedicated to this study, uh, to the book of Micah. And once again, uh, Jill Ferris and her team, I think Kim was also involved, uh, put that together. And I, I don't want you, you know, if you're like me, you're going to need binoculars from where you're sitting uh, to read these. But I would certainly encourage you at some point when you're up here to just start at the very first poster and work your way down. A really good summation of the seven chapters of Micah. Now, if you'll look to your right, to my left, you'll see our vision is now hanging over on this side with some additional banners, again, emphasizing a number of the themes that we will be studying together throughout this study. And uh, Jill and Kim really appreciate your, your work. And, you know, we're a very visible uh, culture uh, anymore. And these, these are wonder, uh, wonderful. And I would particularly pay your, uh, pay your attention, ask you to pay your attention to uh, the second banner there in the, in the black and the blue and the green flowers. Uh, do justly, love mercy, walk humbly. The key verse, I believe, in the book of uh, Micah, and we'll get to that in lesson number six, which is a quote uh, from what I call the Micah mandate, Micah 6 in uh, verse 8. We have titled this study an ancient ethical word for a modern unethical world. And in lesson one, we saw uh, or heard Micah proclaim a very powerful message of judgment upon God's people. He had some things to say to the northern kingdom, uh, capital city being Samaria, as well as the southern kingdom of Judah, capital city Jerusalem. And he continues that message of judgment in chapter 2, but he also begins to identify and address some of the things that were going on in Israel at this time, which created this message of judgment. 
And for Micah, what we will see, spiritual renewal begins with putting an end to one's unjust treatment of others, which is one of the reasons that I chose to read Mark chapter 12 as we began this morning. Uh, These verses uh, of Jesus are also found in Matthew as well as Luke. It is a text that Scott McKnight refers to as the Jesus Creed. When, as I read earlier, Jesus was approached upon one occasion by an individual who I think really was trying to test Jesus a little bit, maybe even trying to trap him a little bit as they were looking for reason to accuse uh, Jesus of misapplication of God's law. And he is asked, what is the most important commandment in all of God's law? And he responds by quoting Deuteronomy 6, but then very quickly he adds Leviticus 19, verse 18. Uh, In other words, to love God is to love your fellow man. And to mistreat your fellow man is to mistreat God. And so this very powerful message of spiritual renewal in this challenge of beginning that renewal with how we treat other people. Prophetic oracles such as we will study today of the prophets, they generally fall into four categories, and we'll see that here in just a moment when we work our way through chapter 2. But these oracles, these messages from God through these very Uh, powerful prophets usually begin with some kind of indictment, telling the people what they are doing wrong. And then after these accusations, there is typically a word of judgment where uh, God indicates how he is going to respond to their sin. But then these words of judgment are usually followed with words of instruction where God will identify what response is appropriate. And then finally, there is what we might call outcome, where God, again, through these prophets, outline hope for deliverance and restoration after judgment uh, has been experienced. And we will see that this morning in Micah chapter 2. So if you brought your Old Testament this morning, please turn to Micah chapter 2. And we're going to work our way through uh, this uh, chapter of of 13 verses. I've divided it into uh, three sections. Greg, our sermon this morning will be brought to us by the letters D and P, uh, by the way. First of all, in verse 1, we see a pronouncement of death. This oracle begins with the word woe. Woe was a normal expression of shocked sorrow upon hearing of someone's death. It was an emotional cry heard at someone's funeral. It expresses grief, lament, and heartache. And so Micah, beginning this oracle with the word woe, It's designed to capture their attention. His listeners would immediately think, oh no, a death has occurred. What they don't understand 
is it is their own death. He proceeds in verse 1 and through verse 2 to list all the sins that these people were guilty of. And you might remember last week in lesson 1, I identified four groups of people in Israel that Micah particularly uh, appears to be addressing. And one of those groups we labeled as greedy landowners. And this is who he addresses in chapter 2. Woe to those who plan iniquity, to those who plot evil on their beds. They, they lay awake at night just dreaming up schemes to seize other people's property. At morning's light, they then carry it out because it is in their power to do it. They covet fields, but they not only desire those fields, they seize them in houses and take them. They defraud people of their homes. They rob them of their inheritance. And so we might count five, six, maybe even seven reasons for the death sentence that Micah is about to give to this group of people because judgment arrives. Now he quotes God in verse 3. I am planning disaster against this people from which you cannot save yourselves. You will no longer walk proudly for it will be a time of calamity. In that day people will ridicule you. They will taunt you with mournful song. We are utterly ruined. My people's possession is divided up. He takes it from me. He assigns our fields to traitors. Therefore, you will have no one in the assembly of the Lord to divide the land by lot. Here, here is, is the picture that we see here in these verses. If you go all the way back uh, to God's promise to Abraham, he promised Abraham that his descendants would possess the promised land. And then we move to the first chapter of Joshua, and uh, Moses has delivered Israel out of Egyptian bondage. And now leadership uh, has been passed down to Joshua, and it is Joshua's job to oversee the possession of the promised land. Uh, a land, God says, that belongs to him. And then he gives it as an inheritance to each member of Israel. And so they have been in, entrusted with God's land. And it was designed to be possessed by a family perpetually. And this was God's promise to his uh, people. And yet, because of their sin, because of judgment, uh, the land would act, uh, eventually be, uh, the people would be carried off into uh, captivity. But God always promises a remnant. And when the remnant returns, uh, these people, there will be no one then to claim their inheritance. Again, this pronouncement of death. And so we come to chapter 2, verses 6 through 11. And there is a response from this group of people, and the response comes from their prophets, their preachers, uh, if you will, prophets of 
denial. Do not prophesy, their prophets say. Do not prophesy about these things. Disgrace will not overtake us. You descendants of Jacob, should it be said, does the Lord become impatient? Does he do such things? Do not my words do good to the ones whose ways are upright? Lately, my people have risen up like an enemy. You strip off the rich robe from those who pass by without a care. Like men returning from battle, you drive the women of my people from their pleasant homes. You take away my blessing from their children forever. Get up, go away, for this is not your resting place, because it is defiled, it is ruined beyond all remedy. If a liar and a deceiver comes and says, I will prophesy for you plenty of wine and beer, that would be just the prophet of this people. So did you notice how the dialogue shifts in verse 8? We hear from these false prophets in verses uh, 6 and 7, these uh, preachers again, if you will, of these greedy landowners, those that uh, Micah has just pronounced judgment upon in verses 1 through 5. And then Micah, or God, takes back over in verse 8. And the warning is very clear. Do not listen to these false prophets. And verse 11 seems to be uh, a little shy, if you will, at those greedy landowners because they are going to listen to whomever will give them the message that they want to hear. And so uh, the text kind of ends with these words of doom and gloom. But again, we see in verses 12 and 13 uh, the outcome, promise of deliverance. A breakthrough will occur when God um, reestablishes a faithful remnant. I will surely gather all of you, Jacob. I will surely bring together the remnant of Israel. I will bring them together like sheep in a pen, like a flock in its pasture. The place will throng with people. The one who breaks open the way will go up before them. They will break through the gate and go out. Their king will pass through before them, the Lord at their head. Brokenness becomes blessing. As people repent, as God raises up a faithful remnant, he will gather the faithful. And we see uh, two very powerful uh, metaphors that we see throughout Scripture in reference uh, to God. The first being that uh, of a shepherd. Uh, Jesus picks up on that metaphor, especially in John chapter 10, where he says, I am the good shepherd. Uh, A very powerful uh, illustration from the culture of that day and age of a faithful shepherd. Uh, caring, intending, uh, feeding uh, his flock. But also this powerful metaphor of a king. God remains on his throne. But when you, when you go back and, and you look at chapter 2, uh, I would suggest this morning that, that the, key, uh, the, the, the key problem amongst these people is found in verse 2 where Micah accuses them of coveting other 
people's fields. And so at stake in chapter 2 is obedience to the 10th commandment. Uh, Exodus chapter 20, verse 17, Deuteronomy chapter 5 and verse 21. The 10th of the 10 commandments, do not covet. And if you go back, and, and again, if we spent some more time uh, analyzing chapter 2, Micah warns that covetousness can lead, first of all, to idolatry, then to injustice, and finally, from God, punishment. So, so true obedience involves avoiding not only certain actions, but also certain uh, attitudes. Uh, to covet is an attitude. It is a desire. It is emotion uh, which wells up in uh, our hearts. And so this morning for our uh, application, I want to suggest five ways that we might overcome covetousness. Now say that with a dry mouth three times real fast. All right? Number one, to help us overcome covetousness, be content with what God has provided. Contentment is a difficult thing. It can be a challenge, particularly in the materialistic culture in which we live, when there is always something newer, brighter, and bigger, and uh, the temptation to always have the latest. Uh, that is one reason that I think uh, Paul's words in Philippians chapter 4 uh, are so powerful and so relevant today. I'm not going to take time to turn over there and read, but in Philippians chapter 4, uh, Paul talks about how he has learned to be content, and what is interesting about the word translated content, subjectively it, it means just that, but objectively it literally means to be self-sufficient. And so you, you almost see a, a contradiction embedded within what, uh, in the words that Paul says. You know, he, he says he's learned to be content, but then it's also a word which might suggest uh, a self-sufficient Paul, one in which he's depending only upon himself. Well, no, you have to keep reading the text. And he goes on to emphasize that he has learned to be content, self-sufficient, if you will, in any circumstance in which he finds himself. But then verse 13 of Philippians 4 gives us the key. Paul says he's learned to be content through the one who gives him strength. And that, of course, being Jesus. Paul can be self-sufficient and Paul can be independent because he depends on Jesus. And that is the key to contentment. Number two, avoid conspicuous consumption. There it is spelling if you need some help. Conspicuous consumption. Anyone heard of this phrase? 
good. It's new. Something new. This is where we spend money, not for anything that we need, but simply to make a statement about who we are. And I, I came across this little phrase a few years ago, and I did some research on it. And uh, one, one of the interesting things about this little phrase is it was first coined by a, an economist or sociologist way back in about 1890-something. And I find that interesting because, again, that was over 100 years ago. And here this uh, sociologist, this, this individual who studies economy and the way Americans were uh, making money and accumulating wealth, that, that was over 100 years ago. And, and you still see this uh, phrase being used today. And, and again, the challenge is to avoid it. We, we often uh, have this idea that we are entitled. And our, how many iPhones are there now? 11? Are we up to 11? Or am I behind? I think I have a 10. And, you know, for a few years I carried four, an iPhone 4. And, uh, you know, Taylor, our youngest son, said, Dad, you, you, you got to get a 10. You know, so he helped me pick out a 10. It's red, by the way. And, and, and again, just, just this idea of, of accumulating things just to make a statement about who we are and, and learning to avoid those kinds of of temptations, uh, which would bring us then to number three. Resist the temptation to compare. If so-and-so has it, then I got to get it, you know, or uh, to stay, maybe to stay a step ahead, stay a step ahead. We see what someone else has and think, oh, I can do better than that. But resisting that temptation to compare. Number four, be a faithful steward. Now, we, we don't see the word steward in Micah chapter 2, but the idea of stewardship is certainly present. You know, again, there are a number of words we find in the New Testament which help us uh, to understand what it means to be a follower of Jesus. Uh, one of those is disciple. In fact, uh, that word is probably used more than any other word. But the word steward is also found. And a very important concept when it comes to our relationship with Jesus and being a follower or disciple of Jesus. And a steward is simply someone to whom something or some other has been entrusted and so I, I am giving, given something uh, to guard, to protect, uh, to um, uh, take care of, to oversee. And so I am a steward over that thing or again over some person. Uh, parents, we are stewards over our children. Grandparents, we are really stewards, aren't we, over our grandchildren. 
and the things that, that, that we uh, enjoy in our lives, to, to think of it as something that God has entrusted to us. You see, the land in ancient Israel belonged to God. And he had simply shared it with his people, gave them, each family, an inheritance. And so they were responsible for it. And so these, these greedy land grabbers were not, uh, they weren't satisfied with what God had given to them. And there, there is, is another danger to not be content, to not depend upon God, is really to say, God isn't taking care of me like I think he should. And so thinking about being a steward, about whatever God has given to us, uh, that he has entrusted those things to us, those people to us, in being accountable and responsible uh, in managing those things. And then finally, number five, and I, and I guess this is the practical, the practical application today. G give something away. Be, be benevolent. Be generous. And g give, give something useful, something of, of valid uh, value uh, away to someone who, who possibly could, could make better use of it. Now, I... I do my best to practice what I preach. And so uh, this week, as I was preparing for this sermon and uh, began to think about uh, a way that we could practically apply overcoming covetousness, I, I begin to look, okay, I'm going to have to give something away this week. You know, if I'm going to preach it, I've got to practice it. And, and so I've, I've got several things in mind and have uh, some people uh, in mind to just give some things away because we accumulate so much, don't we? Probably all we got to do is go up into our attic. Look, Lori and I finally, finally got our, I say finally, Christmas has only been, what, a couple weeks or so ago. Uh, if you fudge a little bit, I guess it's closer to three but we got all of our Christmas stuff down yesterday, which means that I made about 28 trips from uh, the house up the stairs into uh, the attic. And I, my attic is not a place I regularly go, but, but every time I go up there, I think, okay, one of these days, I'm going to clean this, this attic out. And I've only had that attic for 18 months. And, and it's still, Lori said, be sure you put the Christmas boxes where we can easily get to them next Christmas. So I've, I've done that. I've, I've done that. But we have so much. One of the things that we did uh, several years ago at the Westwood Congregation in Edmond, we, we had, uh, I, I taught a class, somewhat like Dean Kilmer's dream class uh, back in the day, from which our latchkey program uh, eventually evolves. And it was, it was a class designed to challenge us 
to be more generous, to be more uh, benevolent, to be more involved in uh, the community immediately uh, around us. And we, we came up with this, this idea, we called it free shop. Uh, not far from our facility, there were three uh, kind of lower income uh, apartment uh, complexes. And, and so we, we challenged uh, each other uh, to just give some stuff away. And it, it, was, it was a garage sale, only it was free. It was a free shop. And we spent some time scattering some flowers uh, in our uh, close proximity, even provided free transportation. And it was amazing, the response of people, how um, uh, thankful they were and how appreciative they were and how we made a context, uh, contacts in which we were particularly able to have a bigger influence upon some children that belonged to those families as well as adults. And the amazing thing was people, the, the people who were coming to Free Shop would bring stuff for Free Shop as well. And, and so this, this generosity, this idea of giving something away, it became contagious. And we, we wound up doing that for, I don't know, three or four uh, summers. I'm not sure Westwood does it uh, any more. But again, uh, helping us to overcome greed and materialistic tendencies, the Bible word, covet by simply being generous people, benevolent people, and giving something away. Here is the last verse uh, of Emmy Lou Harris' time in Babylon. Little boy blue, come blow your horn. The crows are in the corn. The morning sky is red and falling down. Let your song of healing spark away out of this dark, lead us to a high and holy ground. That ground is found in Jesus. He is the one in which we find contentment. It is in Christ that we find our identity and all really that we need to possess. And so the question this morning is, are you in Christ? The Bible is pretty clear about that conversion process. We respond by faith to God's word. We put our faith in who the Bible says Jesus is. We confess him as our Lord. We submit to being immersed into his name. We're raised a new creature, Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5 in verse 17. And now we belong to him and we give our lives of service, life of loyalty and faithfulness to Jesus. Are you in Christ this morning? If not, the baptistry's warm, the water's warm. We're ready to go. Maybe you've made that decision. 
Maybe you've made that step in your life, but for whatever reason, you've gotten off path. We're, we're here to pray for you and encourage you. If you have any need this morning, please come while we stand and